Whether one is listening to this in Myanmar or from outside the country, we know it is a very difficult time for those of us who hold the Golden Land and its people in our hearts. In trying times like these, we can all use a bit more care and compassion in our lives. So on behalf of the team here at Insight Myanmar, I would like to say, in the traditional way Metta has offered, may you be free from physical discomfort. May you be free from mental discomfort. May you not meet dangers or enemies. May you live a peaceful and happy life. And may all beings be free and come out of suffering. And with that, let's move on to the show. I'm happy to welcome Diego Preto, who is joining us from Chile, to share some of his experiences as a meditator coming to the Golden Land. So, Diego, thanks so much for joining us here at Insight Myanmar Podcast. And why don't you kick us off by telling us initially what brought you to Myanmar in the first place? Hey, Joa. Thank you for the invitation. Well, my first and only visit to Myanmar was on the context of doing a documentary about the Buddha's teaching. So first we start with a friend in Camila uh, in India. That was like our first destination for the documentary because, you know, all these sacred places where the, the Buddha lived. And after it was natural to go to Myanmar, that is a place where Buddhism is still very alive. So because, you know, in India... You have a lot of monuments, but it was very hard for us to find meditation, meditation teachers or, you know, places to meditate. And so Myanmar gives us a lot of possibilities to learn different practices of Buddhist meditation and also to visit very sacred places that they were like very inspiring for us. Mm, right. So you're saying that India, where I know you spent a lot of time, is wonderful in terms of the history and some of the background and the monuments you get to see. But in Myanmar, you have much more of this living, thriving, dynamic Buddhist society you can actually enter into and participate. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And so coming from, you know, it's it's interesting getting your perspective because, number one, you're from Chile, South America, which is... Uh, and and so coming in, coming to Asia in and of itself, you're going to have a different perspective than uh, a number of the, the the Westerners we Western meditators we might talk to a bit more of. But then also you came via India and you spent a lot of time in India. So obviously coming to Myanmar would be more of a contrast with that, especially the Buddhist culture and Buddhist element of it. So coming from both of those backgrounds, as you entered Myanmar the first time, the only time, what were some of the things that really stood out to you off the bat? 
Yeah, well, coming from India, because it's funny because I heard some friends that they were coming from Australia or other places to Myanmar, and they were saying to me, prepare yourself, it's very noisy and, you know, very messy. And I get to Rangoon after spending like almost a year in India, and I felt so quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Everything for me was so in silence and the people were so like slow sometimes for me <laughs> so yeah i think it's really depends from where you're coming from what is your impression of myanmar so my my first impression i found it very quiet and and the people were so like relaxed i can say in the street you can talk to them and you can sit on the corners and drink some tea so yeah, that, I think that's my first impression, but I'm I, I'm not sure is the impression that everybody will have. <laughs> sure, yeah, I think that's that's a really critical thing to look at is where are you coming from, both your country of origin as well as the place you just came from that is contrasting with when you first experienced that. But looking at the perspective of being a practitioner, a meditative practitioner in India for so long and uh, practicing there and then coming to Myanmar, what stood out uh, in Myanmar as a practitioner that was different from your experience in India? Yeah, well, in India, most of the meditation I did was in the context of Goenka 10 days retreat that, you know, is like very structured and is uh, very focus on more on the lay practice, not on the monastic. So I think that was my first shock is to see so many monastic way of living in the city and outside the city and everywhere, actually. You can see monks on the street every day and you can talk to them. You can go to the monasteries and learn about the history and the practice. So that was something that we couldn't find in India. In India, most of the monks that you see are from other countries that are uh, making pilgrimage to India. So <laughs> so it, it was not too easy to find a monastic experience in India. Uh, in the opposite, in Myanmar, it was very easy. You know, it was just around the block and it was very rich. So that, that was my first impression and I was very satisfied with that. I felt very attractive to it. Mm, that's really beautiful. And as you came to interact more with monks and nuns and monasteries and say it as this experience that you had in Myanmar that you weren't able to have the same, to the same extent in India, where most of those monastics were there on pilgrimage or they were there in missions and their monasteries at some of the sacred sites, but not really from that kind of living Buddhist society. Why was that important to you? Or what what did you gain from those series of experiences of being able to converse and interact with monks and nuns that you didn't get in India? And what effect did that have? What impact did that have on your practice and the way that you understood the spiritual path? For me, it's like the difference of studying a book about a place a lot and then get to know the place. So Buddhism for me, in India and in South America, it was a lot about, it was practice in a way, but a lot from the books and the teacher of the teacher of the teacher and the recording of the teacher. So <laughs> it was like a very far away from a direct experience from a living master or a living teacher, you know? So 
wants to get in contact in Myanmar with living monks and teachers that they follow the precepts and and live accordingly to Buddhism. It was very special for me because I get to open my perspective of what Buddhism is. You know, I was maybe close-minded of what Buddhism is because I was getting an idea of a preconcept of what it is. But then I realized in Myanmar that Buddhism changed with the time, changed. Mm. I mean, it has been 2,500 years since the Buddha passed away. So, of course, cultures change many things of a religion. You know, some people say that Buddhism is not a religion, but just to let to talk about it in terms of like a religious culture that have incorporated new ways of manifest the teachings that you can see on the writings. And that was very satisfying for me because I get to know the essence of Buddhism more than just, you know, the rules and the, the, the books that are fixed and structured. And, 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 and once you read all the, the, the suttas and get to know more, Buddha said many times that Buddhism is flexible and the idea of Buddhism, at least from what I get now, is to experience impermanence. So following rules and lines and letters and structure is not maybe the best way to experience impermanence. Maybe you need to know somebody that find his way to that experience so he might help you to experience that in the context that you're living. You know, <laughs> I don't know if you mean what you mean. I mean, what I say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious within that kind of transformation that the experience taught to you of being in that living society, can you think of any particular monks or teachers or conversations or anecdotes that started to plant those seeds or turn a light on or start the pro the, this internal process of transformation where things just started to click in ways being outside a living Buddhist society it uh, and where there wasn't this access to this living holistic society, that uh, things were not as clear as they were once you were integrated and, and in Myanmar. Were there, are there particular scenes or anecdotes or people that illustrate uh, the, this kind of uh, light bulb going off over your head? Yeah, yeah, many stories. Like, for example, we arrived in Rangoon and our first you know, place that we want to visit, uh, it was Uva King's Meditation Center, that it was from the lineage of um, Goenka. So we were very attracted to go there. And they were very friendly and they allowed us to meditate in the Dhamma Hall. And, you know, I knew that in that place, many monks were known to get at least in the first stage of enlightenment, you know. So I was like very anxious to meditate in that place. And the second I sat, I sat on my cushion, I started to get like <laughs> attacked from so many different kinds of defilements, you know. I was at first sleepy, uh, drowsiness, and then I was full of pain, and then I was angry, and then <laughs> and I don't know, in like 20 minutes and then an hour, I I went through so many different stages of, you know, uh, not I don't know. I was not feeling happy and expanded that I thought it would be that experience. And and then I realized, wow, this place is so strong that it's made me see my darkness very, very straightforward. And that was something that I couldn't predict, you know. 
So that was like my first contact to meditation in Myanmar, something very, very strong. Mm, that's great. So that's that's actually in a hall in the middle of a sitting having that that experience of how powerful it is based on who meditated there before and how the, the the place was probably built and the purpose that it served and how many years this has been going on that it uh um whereas you, you just realize the infancy of how the dhamma has been brought to our cultures that how integrated it's been here for for so long i i as you say that i'm remembering going to like centuries old teak monasteries up country like in Mandalay and around there and going to the shrine room and just sitting in the shrine room in, in amazement thinking like this is not just a generation or generations of people who have sat here and meditated and bowed down to the statues and everything else this is hundreds of years hundreds of years in this very place this very spot this very wood mm -hmm. with these maybe the shrine maybe the shrines themselves might be different and they might move but sitting in that place looking up and seeing the shrine as you look up that i'm i'm in this living tradition and that uh and and of course when you're in uh these these beautiful old 19th century teak monasteries the whole way that monasteries have, are now built in myanmar with all the concrete it's they've there's definitely been a lot lost in terms of just the the beauty and the functionality and the uh the deeper spiritual resonance of the uh the monastery structures uh it's, it's, an, it's an incredibly fascinating topic to go into there's books that talk about the development of the the monastery structures in myanmar and mm. um when you have that understanding and then you go to some of these 19th 19th century teak monasteries and you just think about all the people that were there with the same devotion and dedication and um, commitment to the spiritual path it's uh being in that physical place is just is so powerful yeah 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 definitely yeah. I, I got something similar in webu Saya, the monastery so that that was more you know very 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 far away from the city in a small village uh actually close to the village it was completely alone there uh but umandara that was the abbot that you know pretty well he explained us the the, the history of the place you know and how mm -hmm maybe 60 years ago this place was full of people coming from everywhere to learn to meditate lay people going to meditate that was very unique you know and yeah. and, and we, we we stayed there three days meditating following the the instruction the instruction of webu sayado that was his anapana and we were reading you know the, the instruction uh, carving stone and then we were practicing and and i felt like an internal peace that I don't remember to felt that way before, so that was like another contrast, you know. Uh, and 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 there were experiences that you couldn't predict; it just happened. You you are open to learn whatever you 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 cross by, and suddenly you start to experience different things. And and in that particular place, I was feeling peaceful, and the place was so peaceful. And and, and in Goenka tradition, uh, anapana. It's not used like the final meditation, you know, it's like a process to calm your mind. But it was very interesting with Webu Sayado that Anapana covered the whole spectrum of <laughs> the practice of Buddhism to reach enlightenment. So yeah, I love I love that experience there. Actually, now it became my main practice after that. Well, after many things, but <laughs> I think it started there. That was the seed of Anapana for me, like my major practice. Yeah, and I think you're hitting on something that is what makes Myanmar such a unique destination to Buddhist practitioners 
is that many people that are learning the practice outside of a Buddhist country like Myanmar, you're generally getting one formatted set of instructions. You're getting a, a ready-made structure that has been tried and tested, and that is is probably, if it's been exported and put to use, like the Goenka system in different places, there's probably a lot of value in the structure as it exists. It probably does give results, so it's uh, it's a synthesized um, uh, structure ready to follow that, that, that is very conducive to learning. But as you become more serious on the path and you come to Myanmar, you realize this is just one interpretation or combination or possibility of the plethora of dynamic uh, options that exist within the structure of what the Buddhist teachings are. And mm-hmm. this is not, not to say this is not a valuable one and, and one that is efficient and effective, but it is one. And as you go there, and at least for me, speaking from 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 myself, especially the first time I went there, I was just amazed. I could talk to uh, I, my the the taxi drivers, the waiters, the hotel clerks, uh, the office workers, normal people I met that the topic of meditation came up. They would, you know, it's kind of like there's a joke about how um, just French people just love talking about their language. And you could talk to just some random guy on the street in France and, you know, he'll know some knowledge about 17th century French language or something and get in debates (laughs) about that. And I had this feeling that like that you could talk to just any random Burmese person on the street and uh, and you would tell them what practice you did and whatever their background was, whatever their level of education or economic status or social status or anything, you could get into this heavy debate of like, well, I practice this way wow. because this teacher says this, and this is why this is the most valuable. And this is really important. And, and not, not as like, well, my technique's better than yours, but as a conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. of like, oh, well, I practice in this way. And, you know, this is, and, and it's like, th- this is incredible. Like when I'm in my country, this is, I'm referencing my first visit when everything was quite new. Uh, back in uh, in my country, I'd say like I do meditation, and you get a range of responses of like what or why do you do that or something exactly. like oh yeah I uh, you know I go on a walk I, I like to light incense or go on a walk in the forest and that's my meditation. It's like well okay not really much conversation here, and then being in Myanmar and saying well I practice meditation and this is the technique I do and this range of people I'd meet throughout the day that would say oh well that's good but you should also do this or yeah, I also go to this teacher or this person told me this yeah. Right. And so I think that's the magic of being a, a, pra, a, pra, a practitioner coming to this living society, at least for me, is that if you're open to it and you realize that your practice, as much as it's done for you, it, it is the practice is coming out of a greater living society that it was pulled from that you now have access to and can tap into. That then leads to a, a range of experiences and adventures and conversations and a path where you don't know where it's going to end up. Um, because you now have, instead of just having access to the one serving bowl that you were given, you now have access to the whole buffet table and you can make that serving yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I had similar experience also there. And I remember actually one that it was very mind blowing. It was going to Tavarwa meditation center <laughs> because I was going to a meditation center and, and I mean, a monastery to say it's like, I think it's in between. But the thing is, you get inside and you don't see many monks. You see like old people and sick people and families walking and it's very noisy. And suddenly you see a monk, but he's smoking and talking to lay people. And you're like, this is a monastery. Mm. <laughs> and But then the next day when I sign in and, you know, like some volunteers job, I start to get 
the whole thing, you know, the, the, the whole mission there was so strong and so beautiful. And so, and the devotion of the volunteers was so like pure hearted. And, and so in the, I don't know, I think it was a week that I stayed there. My meditation, most of my meditation was like really active compassion work, you know, like cleaning, uh, old ladies, you know, and then take to a walk, people who can't, uh, you know, with not, no legs and uh, giving some art classes to kids. And and so I never thought that that's, that will be a meditation practice. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that that's another story that I remember pretty well that changed my view of what is Buddhism. Mm, that's great. So then as you left Myanmar and you had this range of experiences and you you uh, had years to reflect on just that short time you had, what are things that you would say you took away from your Myanmar experience and informed not just like a light bulb going off there, but actually set in motion some kind of transformation in the way that you saw the practice or the teachings or society and uh, and that you you still you, you've held to this day. What are what are things that you've taken away from that experience of being there that have affected your path going forward? Yeah, I always remember the quality of the people there, and it might be because they live in a Buddhist culture, or maybe not. I don't know. But most of the people, if not all, that I met you can see it like very pure intention. And I always remember when I look back to Myanmar and, and my stay there, how everybody was really trying their best to just be nice. I think they enjoy being nice, being friendly and, and helpful and, and be a better person. So, so it go really hand to hand with meditation because I, I think that's the main purpose to, to improve yourself. To, to clean your taints, you know, to to get a better person. And in Myanmar, you can see that into practice very well. And I think that that's mm. my, my best memory for from that country is to see both monks and lay people just be very, very nice and very good person to everybody. The, uh, of course, when you live there, I mean, I know you, you, you lived there for many years. You will see a lot of conflict. But at least for me, <laughs> from a superficial view in, I don't know, a few weeks staying there, I, I, see, I saw a lot of love and compassion in the air. Mm, right. And when you left Myanmar, you also spent some time in Thailand, which is also a Buddhist country with a monastic scene. I also follow Theravada Buddhism, and uh, there's many similarities. And yet, because of the culture and the history, there there are some differences in some various ways of how uh, monastic lay interactions, how the monasteries are run, etc. And I know you spent some time with Thai teachers, Thai monastic teachers at Thai monasteries. What uh, differences and contrasts did you see about your experience uh, among the Thai monasteries compared to the Burmese monasteries? Yeah, well, the monasteries on the city in Thailand, um, I found it like more in not too commitment to to a meditation practice. They, I felt more into politics say something you know and protocols uh, instead of in Myanmar I found that the monasteries in the city they're still in commitment with practice with meditation and and, and with helping the people there 
if they're in need. I found in Thailand on the city, the monastery were more like, you know, like a almost high society status place, something like that. But on the forest, I found like the quality of the monks there were amazing. Amazing of how devoted they are to the practice and and they I got the feeling that they are all practiced to get enlightened this very life. And that's something that maybe it was, I felt more strong in Thai forest than even in Myanmar in some places. That, that was mm-hmm. a, a feeling I got. Uh, which Thai teachers did you spend time with? So I spent some time with Ajahn Suchard and also with Ajahn Anand. And, and it was interesting because with Ajahn Suchard, it was like the second step of Anapana. <laughs> because with Webu Sayado, it was like my first seat. And then with Ayan Suchard, he encouraged me to keep on that way, to, to stay with Anapana and don't jump into Vipassana. So just stay with Anapana and he gave me some very nice tips. And the place there, it was beautiful, you know, in the middle of the forest. So it was a very, very nice environment to practice. Mm, right. So you had an extended Asian stay. You spent a long time in India and went to a number of the, the Buddhist sites there and then went to practice places and monasteries in Thailand and, and Burma. Now you're back home. So what's it like having gone, having spent time in those various kind of Buddhist places and societies and then now being back in a familiar place where your uh, your, your meditation practice is, is again not the norm, and there's not those same range of possibilities. Do you uh, is there is there any feeling of like loneliness, or on the contrary, do you feel like a, a sense of richness of what you've experienced and been able to bring back with you? I have kind of contrast feeling about that because, I mean, this is my home in a way. You know, that's the country where. I born and I grew up and I have many friends and family here. But in the other side, it's very hard to find people com- that are very commit in meditation. So I don't know. I've been already like three years back home and I, I have seen how my meditation practice are slowly decreasing and, and it's getting harder and harder to get into the routine and to sit, you know, one hour in the morning, one hour in the night. Something that traveling around all this country was very easy. It was very natural. And some days I will meditate, I don't know, three hours, then four hours. And it was so, I'm not saying, maybe easy is not the word, but the energy that you need to sit down and to commit into meditation, it was there all around. And here, it's hard to find the source of that energy and especially with quarantine and you know the pandemic thing it's been hard for me to to get back into the practice that i used to have so i felt lonely sometimes in terms of you know dama friends even though i have some i think we're all on the same kind of problems right now Mm, right. Right. Looking back at Myanmar, of course, the past year has been terrible from a, a political, uh, social, whatever standpoint you really look at, uh, looking at it from the Dhamma and monastic standpoint as well. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty much one bad story and devastating news after another. 
Uh, I think for speaking personally, I've never really lived in a society that has had this kind of political turmoil before. I think we came pretty close in my country with the Trump administration, but our institutions at some level, at least up till now, has been able to provide some kind of social stability, even amidst those dangers uh, that we're now seeing just completely come off the rails in Myanmar. Of course, anyone who knows anything about Myanmar history, this it's not like this has gone from being a, a stable, equitable society to something that has now broken apart there. It's basically the longest running civil war and unrest anywhere in the world that it's been going on. So this is ongoing, but the past year has been something mm-hmm. above and beyond what what anyone has experienced in the country who's been living or following it for decades. Where I'm going with this is that Coming from Chile, I'm not super familiar with Chile's history, but I do know that there there have been coups in the past. There has been some measure of social instability and political unrest, and uh, and having been having being a Dhamma practitioner and being from a place where there 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 are uh, issues in the society and the politics that you have to navigate, and and yet you're also a a practitioner living in that. I wonder if there's any general thoughts you have about um, how how your practice has guided uh, understanding and 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 working with whatever sense of instability there might be in Chile, and then looking afar and seeing at in Myanmar uh, some of the problems that are going on, some of the dangers people are living in, and and where practice might be playing a role in that as well. Not to in any way suggest that these things are are equal or comparable. Uh, they're, uh, they're they're very different countries and societies and histories, but just in a general sense, what your thoughts are on where practice and overall social cohesion might go together. Yeah, well, Chile is, is a country that have a history related to dictator, dictatorship, I think that's the word. And so I, at least for my fathers, for example, they, they live in a society that it was it was common for them to live in between fights, war, people disappearing, you know, kidnapping. And so, so for them, when we face problems, you know, like social revolution and stuff, for them is nothing. But for me that, you know, I grew up in a society that has been very stable, you know, in my last 30 years of living, I haven't seen many huge problems until two years ago, that was when we have a kind of a strong social revolution here in Chile um, because of the inequality of this country. You know, we have a lot of lot of rich people and a lot of poor people also, kind of similar to other countries in South America. And my experience when I was like living in this social revolution and all people were on the street and, you know, like burning the metro and buses and... I was feeling so much angst and stress and I couldn't meditate for like one week. I was like on shock and I have to use, I went to my small house, family house in the up in the mountain. It's like a tiny refuge. And when I was like, I don't know, two days there, then I start to feel like more calm and peaceful. So with that experience, it's hard for me to imagine how is to live in a place where 
your close family has been, you know, killed or, you know, so many atrocities. So, yeah, it's very hard to me to, to get to, just to imagine what, how to act in a compassion way in a situation like that. It must, it must be very hard to, to be, you know, like calm and stable and act in a clever way once you are in that tension. So, yeah, yeah, I don't have like a, a general idea of which will be the best action to do in that situation. And yeah, I just felt a lot of compassion with all the country and and I feel a lot of sadness many days. And yeah, that that's like my major feeling right now about what's going on there. Mm, right. And I, I think that's that's very true that when you're going through that kind of turmoil as, as a society, it's difficult to feel that sense of calm. And I, I think it's very telling that even what what was going on in Chile a couple of years ago, that even that level of disruption, which is probably nowhere near what has gone on in Myanmar the last two years, that was so upsetting that it uh, it, it disrupted your own practice. It, it disrupted your own stability. I think that's very telling for meditators to reflect on about what it must be like over there. And I've talked to so many people on interviews and and personally that come from dedicated practitioner backgrounds. And one of the consistent things I'm hearing is people just keep saying, I am not able to practice. I can't practice for a minute. I can't sit down. I can't be mm -hmm. alone with my thoughts. I, I have no mental stability. I try, and the minute I try, I just break down in tears or panic attacks or, you know, and and uh, and just person after person has expressed this this sheer inability to engage in any practice at any level. And so then from there, we'll go to another set of questions and an examination into, well, you know, how does your, if you can't practice now, how does your background of when you could practice, how has that come to be a strength? Even if you're not able to maintain it now, the shift in your mental balance that happened in years before, how is it coming to your aid? Or if you can't practice, what can you do for mental health and mental mm -hmm. stability? And people will mention uh, anything from aromatherapy to um, discussion with, with colleagues that take on a kind of therapeutic effect to uh, turning devices off for an hour and that, that, that they're just able to maintain and manage that. But I think beyond the just developing a sense of calm, I think one of the challenges that I've seen so much of that is uh, is what do you do? How do you how do you maintain the ethical path that you're trying to be on when the choices are continually limiting in your life? When you think about examples of Nazi Germany or something else, where the the structures of society are so horrific and so evil that you you inevitably people will inevitably be put into a situation where they have to choose between doing something which can can break some kind of ethical boundary they'd like to hold or not doing it and uh and and facing other kinds of consequences and those are things i think that from afar there's there's just no way that we can judge not having not knowing what it's like living in a society that's being torn apart uh, at least how I feel, all we could do is listen. All we can do is is try to understand what people are feeling, what they're seeing, what their context is, and what decisions they're making based off of that and try to sympathize, support, and understand that. But 
I don't know how any of us can put ourselves in a place of what we would be like if we were in that kind of position. It's, uh, it's something just literally unimaginable for, uh, a, a kind of social transformation that, uh, that's taking place now that, that really we, we can just regard with a kind of, um, respect and, uh, and support, um, with, uh, with those that are now going through it. Yeah, yeah, and and it's hard because sometimes the easy way is to, you know, like close your eyes and try to get as far away as you can from the problem. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the long term, it doesn't solve any problem. Also, so so yeah, I think when you cannot do anything, it's it's more clever and more wisdom related. What you said, you have to listen. Because listening is not running away, is to stay there and, and and share that feeling. And even if this is very sad and it's very strong, you will definitely learn from that. You will learn from that experience, even though you're, you have nothing to do or you can solve that problem or you can even help anybody with that. Uh, I will find more useful to hear than to escape. That's right. And I think the important thing about listening is listening doesn't mean you have to solve problems. Listening doesn't mean you have to get in there and and resolve things. And uh, being able to listen without a sense of helplessness that I need to find solutions or answers, the mere fact of listening, which is really what these podcasts are all about, just I'm mm-hmm. listening and then we put them out there and hopefully the the audience out there is listening. But really just to and that and what is what else is the act of meditation but to be present with what the reality is without turning away to something less unpleasant and to hold it and to hold it at times sometimes you need wide wise action someone's beating someone else you can step in and you can stop things you're not a not a passive vegetable in every instance but in other cases there could be it could be enough just to be present and just to hear the to hear what's happening to open yourself up that's a kind of donna you're you're giving of your emotions and your time and your mind to just hear what's happening and to feel what that person is experiencing which might lead to even as a listener to tears to trauma to not being able to sleep or focus if uh you know if one is listening enough to this and uh, hopefully not, but uh, but these can be pretty raw and painful things to take in. But yeah, to me, I mean, that is one of the experiences of being a meditator is being able to uh, to face and to experience these difficult and uncomfortable things and and not turn away. And sometimes that that is all that's needed for people going through this over there to know that they're not alone. Uh, if there's, if there's something you could do to help, that's great. Um, being, um, you know, finances or raising awareness or donations or whatever else. Yes, that's great. But beyond that, if, even if one can't do that, or in addition to doing that, just simply to listen and take in and just let those people know what they're going through, that they are not alone, that there are people standing for them, even in these dark times. And I think that's, um, that's, that's really wonderful when the practitioner community and those in the practitioner community who have a relationship with Myanmar, who have benefited spiritually from those teachings can find a way to give back at this time. Yeah. And the beautiful of listening and be present is that when there's actually something that you could do, you will be there and ready for that. So maybe, for example, you will hear 10 or 15 podcasts of 
inside Myanmar. And then in one podcast, in one minute, they will mm. say, it will be beautiful if we can have uh, some help from somebody who knows ex- uh, about, you know, editing audio in that specific thing. And then like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> you know, okay. and you send a message and then and just you were present there. You will have no expectation just to just to listen. But then as response of being there, the the possibility of helping manifests itself. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great thoughts. That's that's really wonderful. And I, I thank you so much for joining us today. It was really great to revisit your experiences of being uh, before you got to Myanmar, your time there. And then once you left and what you once what you took with you, we so many of our interviews have a much uh, heavier tone given the situation there, which is very necessary. And this series is a time to check in with people about the lighter, warmer uh, expressions of gratitude people have that went there. And it's important to remember this is this is not a cutout caricature of a, uh, a collapsed society uh, of poor people. This is a living, dynamic, wonderful place with many different sides of it, many different experiences. And it's not a place that simply needs things. It's also a place that has given so much, so generously, and built the entire mindfulness movement of the world. And so many millions of people have uh, have benefited from that. And so it, it is important to keep in mind, this is a reciprocal relationship of, uh, of things that we can do now to help, but also of moments to express gratitude for how much the spiritual teachings there, and even if one is not a meditator, simply the experience of, of being in Myanmar and how I, I know for a fact from so many conversations how Burmese people and Burmese society have impacted uh, so many people around the world for the better and that uh, this is not a society that simply needs things. This is a society that has given so much for so many years as well. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And thank you so much for the invitation. I feel a huge gratitude with Myanmar and I really, really hope that we will find a way to really, really help and to solve this huge problem together as, as, a, as a world, you know, as a planet. It's, it's a, we are together in this. So, yeah, that's my hope. We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. We simply could not continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous donors, listeners, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and helps us continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform. Thank you. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. 
we invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yara nanda, da, yara nanda, 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 y